Good evening. Many of you, I'm sure, have been to a foreign country at one time in your life, perhaps. Maybe you took a job that took you to a different part of the world. Maybe you fought for our country in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, Perhaps you went on a mission trip. Y'all went to Mexico City four times on a mission trip, to El Salvador once. And each time before the trip, we had several meetings, orientation, if you will, delivered by people who had been there before that, that talked to us about some of the customs and traditions of the place that we were going to. They told us about the do's and the don'ts, what to wear, um, kind of how to blend in, so to speak. Maybe you've spent a considerable amount of time in another country. Maybe you've lived in another country for an extended period of time. If you know anything about that, you know that you don't just go and live as an American somewhere else, right? At least not completely. You adapt and you adjust. You try to blend in as much as possible. Whatever the culture is, you immerse yourself in that culture. That's the idea behind what Jeremiah is saying to the exiles. In Jeremiah chapter 29, Starting in verse 1, it says this, Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people from Nebuchadnezzar, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, from Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare." For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now what we know most about Jeremiah 29 typically is verse 11, right? For I know the plans that I have for you, to prosper you. We see it on graduation announcements. We see it on bumper stickers, on inspirational posters, taglines, and emails. That's typically what we know from Jeremiah 29. We pluck verse 11 out and we make it stand as some inspirational piece of Scripture that we can apply to our lives. But depending on what version of the Bible you use, there is a heading above chapter 29 that says something like, Message to the Exiles or Letter to the Exiles. That's not you right? That's not talking to you. As we've said before, the Bible was not written to you. It was written for you, but it wasn't written to you. And so Jeremiah is speaking to people who have been carried away into captivity, and it really wasn't an inspirational piece of Scripture, right? Because Jeremiah is presenting hope on the horizon, but not for 70 years. It's going to be bad for these people. 
really bad for a while. And even the people living in this day and time couldn't have individualized verse 11 because many of them wouldn't live long enough to see the promise of future glory come to fruition. And so Jeremiah is speaking to people who are being hauled off into exile, telling them that they are about to embark on a one-way trip into slavery. God had delivered his people before, and I'm sure the Israelites were wondering if he would do it again. So Jeremiah arrives on the scene, not with a bumper sticker of inspiration that they could put on the back of their camel, but rather a message saying, it's going to be bad for a while. It'll get better eventually, but not for a while. He tells them that there will be no divine rescue mission, at least not for now. The worst case scenario for these people is about to play out. But there was good news. As we said, there was hope on the horizon, glory awaiting. We've talked about that over and over again in our Wednesday night series, that when the prophets spoke of the day of the Lord, they also typically spoke of hope in the future, a ray of light that was coming. One day, 70 years in the future, the people would return home. Notice verses 11 through 14. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. And it's easy to read verses like this and, and read them devotionally. You know what I mean? You know, we, we tend to want to read the Bible devotionally, and, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but we want to apply verses to us in an inspirational kind of way when they were never really intended for that. So what we want this passage to say is, I know the plans I have for you, Chris McCurley. I'm going to prosper you. No matter what happens, you're going to have a great life. And that's really not the way this is meant to be read. You see, as I said before, even the people living in this day and time could not have individualized this the way we often do. Because many of them would not see this come to fruition. They would be dead before the 70-year promise came to fruition. This was a promise of future welfare for the nation at large. A promise of prosperity, not for any one particular person, but for an entire people. And I feel quite certain that the people that were hearing this message for the first time would probably not have responded the way we often do today. We read this verse and we, we zero in on the, on the prosperity part God has a plan for me. He's going to bless me in amazing ways. But you understand that God's people are being told that everything's not all right. That it will be eventually, but it's not right now. After years and years of heartbreak, after years and years of living in captivity, you're going to have a glorious future. Not you per se, but your kinfolk, right? So there is a promise for those in your lineage, there is hope on the horizon, but only after decades of harshness. So this is not a prosperity passage meant for us, but, but that doesn't mean that we cannot claim it. And I want to be clear about that. All Scripture can be claimed by us. We just have to handle it properly, right? In fact, you've heard me say over and over again that we should read ourselves into the text. And when we do that here we discover some valuable instruction for all of us living as exiles in this land. Because that's what we are. We are exiles. This is not our home. We're waiting the promised land. Someday we will enter. So what do we do in the meantime? 
Well, Jeremiah tells us what God expects of those living in a foreign land, in a foreign kingdom. He tells them, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have babies, seek the welfare of Babylon. God basically says, bless those who put you in captivity by being faithful to me. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. God's instruction to the Israelites was basically get comfortable. You're going to be there a while. Get comfortable. How would you feel about that if you were an Israelite being taken into captivity? How would you feel about those instructions? Peter uses similar language as he speaks to Christians. In verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter is giving instruction on how to live as exiles. He calls them uh, uh, people of dispersion. Now, we're not enslaved, I understand that, and we're not captives. However, we are living in an earthly kingdom that is juxtaposed to the kingdom of God. And these two kingdoms run side by side. At least they do for a while, right? This kingdom we're currently living in isn't going to last forever. And so, For now, we kind of have one foot in each kingdom, right? We have dual citizenship. This current kingdom will not stand. Christ's kingdom will. But in the meantime, we find ourselves dwelling in a kingdom that doesn't always share our views. It's a kingdom that is at odds with our values and our morals. So how do we operate in this kingdom? Well, I think the exiles in Jeremiah's day and time, that's good instruction for us to heed as well. That we wait with anticipation. And while we wait, we conduct ourselves as people who are part of a different kingdom. We abstain from the fleshly things that this kingdom values. We strive to be a good influence. We promote godly principles in the hope of changing the world around us. Peter continues with his instruction to exiles. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or as to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, it is important to note that Peter's audience is persecuted Christians, people that are dealing with mistreatment. And according to Peter, all Christians are exiles or exiles of the dispersion, as he states it. 
And we are waiting for the exile to be lifted and so that we can be gathered together to receive our inheritance. And Peter indicates that this exile will be over when the chief shepherd appears and gathers his dispersed sheep. But living in this current kingdom means that the dispersed will endure ill treatment and persecution. Yet, in the midst of this adversity, Peter says this, here's how you are to respond. Submit yourself to every human institution. Do right, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants or slaves, submit to your masters, even the masters that are not good. This had to be a cultural thing, right? Certainly, Peter's instruction is not for Christians living in this day and age, right? We want there to be nuance to this, don't we? We want there to be some sort of caveat, but there's not. He doesn't give one. We want there to be some sort of out, but Peter doesn't give any of those. Peter tells these Christians and us in the process to respond to mistreatment the way Jesus does. And how did Jesus respond? Well, you continue reading. Verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed for you were continually straying like sheep but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls can I be honest with you Peter's instruction here is about as far from my knee-jerk reaction as he'd possibly get I don't want to respond this way do you at least not on the surface. I want to respond this way because I want to do God's will, but on the surface, this is not how I want to be. It seems too passive. I mean, so what are you saying, Peter, that we're just supposed to be a doormat and let everybody walk all over us? Where would our country be today if people didn't stand up to government tyranny? Where would we be today? Is Peter saying that we just need to sit back and take it? Regardless of what happens to us? No, I, I don't think that's what Peter is saying. I don't think that would be in line with the rest of Scripture when you look at how Christians are to stand up for injustice. We are supposed to stand for justice. Wherever we see injustice, we are supposed to stand up. We, we defend ourselves when necessary. We don't allow the government to override the authority of God. Peter's message is this. Be faithful to God and a blessing to the nation you live in. And just like the Jews living in Babylonian captivity, wait with anticipation for the day when the exile will be over and you will receive your inheritance. What does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like disruption. It doesn't look like division. It doesn't look like being a sore thumb. It doesn't look like being a jerk. It doesn't look like being calloused or cynical. It doesn't look by, like being an idolizer of certain things. It looks like being Jesus. It looks like being at peace with all men as far as is possible. It looks like returning good for evil. It looks like letting God handle all the revenge stuff. 
It looks like pursuing something bigger and being invested in something greater than this life. It looks like making a difference in this world by responding differently than the world. And to wrap things up, I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 38, it reads like this. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, he asked of him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. I love that last line. After that, nobody else was going to ask a question. The Jews of Jesus' day were not totally off base in their thinking about the kingdom. I kind of always thought that, didn't you? I kind of always thought, well, they were just completely off base in the way they thought about the kingdom. Not really. They were completely off base in how it was going to be brought about, right? But they knew what the prophets were pointing to. Like we talked about this morning, they didn't expect it to be Jesus. But when the truth is, they were spot on about what God was going to do. They were just wrong in how he was going to do it. And based on their experience, you really can't blame them. I mean, the anointed king in their minds would come, kill, conquer, and reign over all the earth. From his throne, uh, the Messiah would establish peace for the Jews. I mean, that's how every other kingdom was established. Why wouldn't this one be the same? The Messiah is going to come, he's going to reign on an earthly throne, he's going to rule with an iron fist, he's going to dispose of evil, everybody's going to live according to the law, and everybody's going to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was the Jewish mindset about the Messiah and the kingdom. Obviously, it was nothing though like they had expected. I want you to notice once again what Jesus says to this scribe in verse 34. He tells him that he is not far from the kingdom. The scribe's understanding about the two greatest commandments put him in close proximity to the kingdom of God. Not physically, but in a spiritual sense. This scribe's answer had brought him in close proximity to the kingdom because it was focused on the heart and not just the letter of the law. Love, not just rule. Jesus is saying, basically, you're starting to get it. You're starting to catch on. Now look at Luke 17, verse 20. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, verse 21, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So if the Pharisees... If the kingdom was in the Pharisees' midst, then where was it? Where's the castle? Where's the throne? Where's the palace? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's not like that. There's not those things. It's not tangible. There's things that you can't see, but are there nonetheless because it's spiritual in nature. 
Now, your version may state, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And the Greek here can be a little tricky. Uh, it can be translated to mean in your heart or dwelling within you. But I personally believe the New American Standard here translates this verse the best as it points to Jesus being among them. Because the Pharisees certainly didn't have the kingdom of God within their hearts or inside them. Jesus is saying the kingdom is here. You're in close proximity. It's standing right in front of you. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is king. And it was imperative that they understood that, that they recognized that. And of course, it's imperative that we do as well. It's imperative that we recognize that we are kingdom citizens. And I think we know that, and I think we recognize that. What does that mean, though? It means that we serve a king who will one day lift the exile and bring us home. And until then, we wait with eager anticipation. And while we wait... While we, ate, wait, while we wait, that's hard to say, while we wait, what do we do? Well, we stir the pot on Facebook. That's what we do. We get into political arguments with everybody we come in contact with. We add to the tension and the division in the world. That's what we do while we wait, right? No. No, while we wait as exiles, we get comfortable. Not too comfortable, Right? We build houses, we plant gardens, perhaps we get married, maybe we have a baby or two or three or four or five. We seek the welfare of our city, of our nation. We do as Jeremiah's audience was instructed to do. We do as Peter instructed the dispersion to do. We act like Christ in a world that so desperately needs to see him, right? It wasn't long ago that I sat down to watch a movie. I don't typically do that. I have a pretty short attention span. While I like the atmosphere of a movie theater, I don't like the prices, so I don't go to the movies very often. I have streaming TV. I figure it's going to come out on Netflix or Hulu at some point, and I'll just watch it then. But even then, I don't really like to sit down and just watch a movie. But I did this one particular evening, and I got about 45 minutes in. I'm thinking, where is this going? I mean, it wasn't interesting. It wasn't holding my attention, but I got so far, I couldn't really abort it, you know. So I, I, I did the timer thing to see how much time I had left in this movie. Still another two and a half hours. I thought, I can't do this. So you know what I did? Yeah, I fast forwarded to the end. Thank you, Lila. <laughs> I went to the very end where there was like five minutes left. And you know what I realized? There was a whole lot of unnecessary stuff in the middle. I could have just gone to the ending and been happy. I'm so glad I didn't waste my time with all that other stuff. My friends, we know how this whole thing ends. But the middle's really important. We know that this life is going somewhere, but in the meantime, the middle, the stuff sandwiched in between our birth and our death, that dash that appears on the tombstone that represents your life, that's important. It's not unnecessary. There's a lot of stuff in there that you need to take heed of. Heaven is won or lost right here, right now. The beautiful truth about this life is that it's going somewhere and you don't want to be left behind. This stuff matters. As difficult as it may be in your marriage right now, it matters to glorify God. As difficult as it may be in your job right now, it matters that you glorify God. 
As difficult as it may be raising kids right now, you know it matters that you glorify God. We glorify God in all that we do because someday, someday, the exile will be lifted, we'll be gathered to our God, and the winners will receive their reward. Be a winner. Can we help you tonight? David's going to lead us in a song. If we can pray with you, if we can study with you, if we can help you take those next steps in faith, let us. But we say it all the time, at least we did before COVID hit, every Sunday night, don't leave here tonight without being right with God. Don't face this week without being right with God. And please remember that you're not just the church here tonight. You're the church out there tomorrow and the next day and the next day. What you do out there matters. Glorify God. Come as we stand and as we sing.